0: Today's podcast is brought to you by Mindsight. Mindsight provides IT services to many K-12 school districts in the Chicagoland area. From cybersecurity to hybrid cloud, unified communications to managed services, Mindsight has acted as an extension of client IT teams for nearly 20 years. They're recognized as a leading IT consulting firm, so contact them with any IT-related questions at 630-981-5007 or visit gomindsite.com and tell them that AIDL
1: sent you.
2: Well, welcome back, everybody. Um, we are ready for our second Upstream uh, podcast here today where we're going to be dissecting it with our great panelist group. Um, MJ, do we have any, any updates? I know we just were at the IDEA conference last week, which was awesome.
0: Yes, we had our workshop um, at on Tuesday, February 14th, um, and that was Facilitated by Paul Timms on the tech side of physical safety. Really, really great discussions. Had an awesome tabletop that really got our thinking going. Um, it was. I Yes, go ahead, Tom. I was going
2: to say it was. It was interesting. It was a new take on a Valentine's Day type of routine for me, right? To learn about the <laughs> physical security and how tech can play a role in it. I definitely didn't get in all the the warm bubbly feelings that I normally get on a Valentine's <laughs> yeah. day, but a uh, lot of great stuff that I, that I learned, uh, and, and yeah, yeah. And stuff Lots to of think about, learning going on. Yes. Yeah.
0: And you're right. As a precursor to whatever Valentine's day, active evening activities were planned. <laughs> <laughs> you, had, you had to like separate yourself from it. Um, we do have our April 14th IEDA workshop coming up Um, You'll be seeing more information coming out on that as well as our June CTO Summit. So John had, uh, Connolly had sent out information to get yourself registered. So um, don't forget to do that um, in planning ahead for all of the fun.
2: Yeah, we so great stuff coming up. So again, remember we've got Workshop Four as well as the CTO Summit. So look for those registration pieces. We'd love to see everybody out there and have time to connect and collaborate. Um, so make sure you look for that. But MJ, okay, why don't we jump into it? Let's. We talked a little bit last time about the first section of Upstream and and how we start looking at problems before they become problems. Now we got our second section here. So let's let's just jump right into it.
0: Yeah, so our second sex- section is chapters 5 through 11, and it really dives into the questions, uh, the seven questions upstream leaders um, have to answer. And so we're really diving into the meat of the book and um, really doing a lot of self-reflection and self-analysis and Um, And the bulk of our learning so that we could be uh, more upstream thinking leaders, uh, as opposed to downstream reactors, right? So our kickoff question today is, in thinking of a current problem that you're trying to upstream, or even one that you've tried in the past, uh, which which of these questions uh, is the most challenging for you as a leader? And so I'll go over the seven questions uh, for you guys and for our leaders. Um, so, question number one is how will you unite the right people? Question number two, how will you change the system? Number three, where can you find a leverage point? Four, how will you get Early warning of a problem. Question number five, how will you know you're succeeding? And the last question, how will you avoid doing harm? So we'll open it up to the group. And again, um, as you are answering this first kickoff question, go ahead and introduce yourself um, and which district you're from
1: and away we go. I think I saw Maureen had her hand up. Oh, Maureen, you're on mute. Nope, we're not getting your audio. I Will can toss jump it. in my you yeah, me to ahead, jump John. in my Maureen's while Maureen's in. doing that. Mm-hmm. So
2: the one that I find the most difficult is changing the system because it's um it's like I think what we always strive for, like how do you change the system, which is basically what is has been in place. And it's not necessarily a, a tweak. And some of the other questions kind of lead into the ultimate goal of changing the system. I just find that to be the, the most challenging.
1: Morning. John, I
3: uh, I'll go. So uh, Maureen Miller, I'm from Oak Park School in Oak Park, Illinois. Um, what I was going to say is I, I find it um, on the opposite side of difficult, but easier is to look for those levers. Like uh, for some reason, levers uh, is a new, new uh, uh, word in terms of education change that has come up in like probably the last five to seven years. I didn't, you know, I'm I'm a science teacher, I know what a lever is, <laughs> um, but I never really applied it in this context. So for me, it's it's seeking out what those levers are. You can't change everything all at once, but if you can find a lever, um, then you can start chipping away to get to change. Anthony?
4: Yeah, um, I think the most, I, I agree with John, really. Um, Tony... Briscoe here, Anthony uh, from the Noble Schools uh, District Charter School here uh, in Chicago, Illinois. I think one of the, I agree with John. I definitely agree with Maureen. Um, I think who will pay for what does not happen. And so I think when we're looking at systems that need to be changed, if we, we know we need the changes need to be made, it's how to make those changes. So if we do nothing, we maintain the status quo. But if we rush in, if we swim upstream too fast, that means we're missing something. And it's just so I think that who will pay for what does not happen. So we can't keep things the same, but we don't want to rush and make those changes right away. I think that's the that's the challenge I find.
0: Thanks for mentioning that one, Anthony. I think I skipped that one as I was trying to read through all the questions. But yeah, who will pay for what does not happen? Right.
5: Uh, I'll jump in, Brian. Uh, at Summit Hill School District 161, Uh-oh. I recently changed, uh, so I'm happy to be here. And so uh, this book for me is super timely uh, because I I am trying to swim a little bit upstream and, and make some changes here. So um, the, the thing that kind of stuck out to me as we were, we were talking was uh, system changes start with a spark of courage. Um, and so for the very first time in my career, I actually was a part of a board planning meeting. Um, and and so it was really interesting because I had clearly defined goals. Um, and so our board talked a lot about like creativity and innovation Hmm. and we use office
1: 365.
5: Hmm. (laughs) And, And so we, we we took a survey of the staff, which was part of my board goal. And, you know, I, I led boldly. And I said, if we want to use the word creative and innovative, like, and we, and we want professional development. And I kind of like laid it out. I'm like, we, we need to transition to Google. And then I ducked underneath the table before someone did, like threw something at me. But like, he, here we are, like, why are we doing what we're doing? And, you know, like... And, and so it's like, I, I talk about this like foundation. If we're not building the right foundation, then we're buying these products that are trying to do like a round peg into a square hole. And, um, you know, so for me, like, I, I'm trying to get like the momentum. So our our theme for next year is gonna be momentum. And so how do we get the momentum for people that want to to use Google? Like we already have people using Google in here because they hate Office that much that they're already using your, like the, you know, like the underground movement is already there so for me it was like you know your question was how do you how do you unite the right people and one of the things i read was you know mostly we get people that are volunteers Mm. and they're chosen and obligated to that versus being on there and so like i'm like okay like i want people that want to be a part of this movement like i want so i call them who are the early adopters that want to make this change um And and the one thing I I read that I really highlighted was like, everybody has to get a role and it was have a goal that then continually keeps them contributing. Because what I don't want this to be is Brian's new. Brian came in here and did this and then Brian, 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 no, no, no. Like as a collective team, we, we saw the benefit for what this could do. Like, And of course, after I shocked them with Google, I said, we also need to start looking at different devices because we are also using, you know, 11 inch Windows laptops from kindergarten all the way up to eighth grade. And I'm like, if we think that's the appropriate device, maybe we're not looking in the right spots. So I I hit them with a a little bit of a one-two punch, but again, like, let's go out and take a look. Let's form groups that are are, are looking that that think that there are options that are better out there. So this book has been really super helpful for me as I'm trying to plan these, you know, district wide, you know, initiatives and and making sure everybody feels that they have a voice in here because 10 for 10 years, nobody had a voice in anything.
0: Interesting. So, Brian, um, is this your first like six months into the job or have you been there for a year already?
5: Home. Oh, I've been here since July.
0: Okay. So you just, d- just dived into the deep, deep end. Of the- uh,
5: literally, because then and when I started here, our buildings and grounds people both quit. So for the first month of my job, I ran buildings and grounds on top of it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. So it has been um some hell of a ride. <laughs>
1: yeah.
0: Well, I'm but at, in some I'm sense, the- you, you've gotten to know systems pretty mm-hmm. quickly, like the, the yeah. existing systems in your district, you know, sometimes, oftentimes. When you're new to districts, you often hear the wise wisdom of don't do anything for a year, you know, um, and really start to just observe what systems there are so you could be upstreaming. But it sounds like you've had to (laughs) really just dive in and they put you there. I mean, they they literally needed you there. And that at that point,
5: I jokingly say, like, if you say we've been frozen in time for 10 years and I've come with the blowtorch, like it is time for the deep thaw. (laughs) but because again like you know who's it it's the the guy who's always on twitter adam adam something right and his his guy's book uh you know kids deserve it and here we are like kids deserve to have the best stuff out there and maybe a windows laptop is i don't know but let's go out there and make sure we find it and make sure that we are actually using it and I, i always say it too like there's two choices people make It's either we make it administratively and teacher friendly, or if we're doing it, we're doing it for kids, then we need to open up our our scope and and find the devices or products or things or processes that are actually best for kids. And if it's best for kids, it might not necessarily be best for administrators or easiest, but our our goal is for kids. Anthony, you were going to jump in. Yeah, I
4: was just gonna, you know, talk about when Brian said he had to step into this other role when Amanda brought up our last session when she talked about, oh, you're giving me more. I think she used the phrase like children, you're adding you're adding more things to my plate along with this. And so I just wanted to make mention of that of the just the synergy that exists here.
0: Exactly. Sounds like Brian had twins.
4: <laughs> Start right off. <laughs> and a great radio voice, by the way.
5: Thank you. Somebody said that to me yesterday about that. <laughs> Maybe I I have a future career somewhere else.
1: Yeah, that's right. That's right. Amanda? Yeah, I agree with
6: John um, that the the biggest um, hurdle is really like how to change the system. But one of the things um, that really like had me thinking about how we do change in education um was like the unintended consequences of the changes that we make um, and also like the time to like um see what happens with the changes like we are so like what's the next thing we have to fix what's the next thing we have to fix we don't actually like give our fixes time to fed in um, and so we don't know what the unintended consequences are a lot of times because we're just to the next problem. It feels like a lot.
1: Um, so yeah. Yeah. Carol.
7: Um, the question that really stood out to me is, is really like, is really like standing on the shoulders of what Amanda was just saying. Like we're, we're playing whack-a-mole a lot with um, with with, like responding to issues, you know, so the question about how will you get an early warning and especially the focus on, um, you on utilizing data to meaningfully get that early warning felt, felt a little like incongruous to me because for us, like, I, I feel like, I feel like those two things almost don't match up. Some of it is, um, I forgot to introduce myself again. I'm Kara Thorsenson. I'm at Chicago Public Schools. Um, We've got a lot of data points. So I think it feels very burdensome. We also, I I would be willing to say, don't have the most cohesive and coherent data strategy. And I believe we're understaffed in that area. But mainly, I think when we're really looking for early warnings to try to get ahead of just resolving crisis after crisis after crisis... I think a lot of that for us comes anecdotally and we kind of have an, an approach like where there's smoke, there's fire. So if we hear from a couple teachers about an issue, a similar issue, um, we've found that it's it can frequently be safe to assume that there's a lot more of that going on and not have us get lost in trying to dig up data and spend months trying to like ascertain how legit that problem is. Then we've moved past the thing about early warning. So that was really motivational to me thinking about um, you know, how do we codify what constitutes an early warning and how do we get moving on it right away before getting lost in getting lost in everything else, all the other day-to-day work, and then co- circling back around to it only when it blows up in our face and that we have to just like jump into action. And so that to me, if I, if, if my team and I are able to leverage that, I think we could make a lot of change in, in addressing upstream in yeah. going upstream to address our challenges before they come hit us downstream. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. And I I would agree for for myself as well. It was like how that question of how will you get early warning of a problem um, helps if we can establish those kind of systems, then that's going to help us keep going back to like what Amanda was saying, not whacking the mole all the time, but really understanding the problem, right? Um, And I loved what Dan Heath said about data for the purposes of learning. And not inspection. And I mean, I I have to admit, like there were there were times where like, well, why are these, you know, like for for um, my district. We were trying to figure out um, what our turnaround time was for uh, tech tickets that were being submitted and and i have to admit like the way we initially structured it was hey if you aren't turning these around by a certain amount of time um you know we're going to have to have a talk you know and it was just it was so much more penal penalizing than how could we have reframed that for the purposes of learning what issues were taking longer what particular devices were coming up more and more so um as as tech issues and things like that so I think my team would have been, I guess, a lot more invested and owned it a lot more um, if we really had those structures in place to analyze data for the purpose of learning. Um, Anthony?
4: Yeah, I really wanted to, uh, thank thanks for those comments and really, you know, Kara's comments as well. I, I remember a situation where we had two teachers being compared. Why does this? Scores off the charts, and why are yours not off the charts, right? And I think that's the difference between having data-driven decisions versus data-informed decisions. And so when when it, I was like, "Well, talk to me about what you're experiencing," and he said, "Well, this guy doesn't. I have 30 students in my room. He has 30 students. He has two students with IEPs. I have 17. Well, that's a little bit a change of <laughs> you really. You can't compare those two. And so yes." coming at you the way they did, well, that was a data-driven decision, but it was not a data-informed decision that would have given that practicality, which goes, how did this even happen where you ended up with this many students and it wasn't split? Like, who are we really serving when we're doing things like this? Are we serving teacher stats or are we serving our children in that regard? And so for me, data should be used as a tool to explore what we should be doing, but we tend to use data as a hammer to dictate what we're not doing. And that's when that pressure comes in. And so I think the early warning systems, if we're using data incorrectly, then yeah, it's gonna seem more punitive and more penal than it will restorative and practical.
0: I'm seeing a lot of head nods. Thanks for that clarification, Tony. Cause I do think as you're pointing out, um, when we're not using data uh, data warning systems or early warning systems in 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 that way, um, I we're not like you what you were pointing out. We're not finding out what the actual leverage points are. Right to Maureen's point, right? Like we need to be able to identify those leverage points and. We can use data to do that, but if we haven't framed the data in a way that would reveal those leverage points, right, we kind of get caught in uh, in those
1: traps, right? Um, I'm seeing a lot of head nods. Any other thoughts on that? Amanda, Amanda? I didn't yeah. introduce myself before, but I'm from Brookfield LaGrange Park
6: School District 95. Um, one of the things that they talked about was like, when you design the system, you need to think about how the data is going to be used. And I feel like they shared a lot of examples um, about, like, we thought we were collecting data about um, injuries in New York City from trees falling. But really, the problem wasn't, you know, the that wasn't the problem. The problem was we cut the pruning budget or, you know what I mean? And, and so like just making sure the data you're collecting is actually addressing, um, the issues. I think MJ, you talked about like help desk tickets. Like it's not about, you know, saying, why is this technician getting more done than this technician? It's about like discovering the problems in the system and, you know, why is casting broken all the time and how do we address that issue rather than,
1: um, be wagging your finger at one person over another right right other thoughts or reactions seeing some head nods yeah
4: anthony i'll I'll jump in here because i actually want to ask a question because i'm curious because like when they bring up the real estate issue in baltimore and I'm just wondering, knowing where real estate is in Baltimore right now, and a lot of things that were brought up when it comes to, you know, using Kenwood Academy as an example here in Chicago of getting kids' scores up and graduation rates and things like that. But and I really want Kara, please weigh in on this because knowing where we are now with with education, when results just came out, of course it's post pandemic. Well, still during a pandemic, but you understand where I'm going with this. So real estate right now in Baltimore is at all time, like super low. Um, They're trying to get a lot of investors there. So I'm wondering, like, where is the sustainability side of swimming upstream? Because a lot of the things that he mentions at the time the book were written, I feel like that it's being, some things are being reverting back to the state that they were. And I think that has to go with the teams that are actually brought together to go back to that question. How do we engage the right people Mm -hmm. to make this sustainable? I just wanted to put that out there and see if anybody else recognized those trends in the book as well.
7: Um, hi, this is Kara again. I will jump in really quick. Sustainability, I think, is one of the is one of like our single biggest challenges because it impl- like almost anything we do to try to tackle our um, problems upstream has an associated cost. And, you know, it's very rare that, you know, even if it's even if it's nominal and we're trying to leverage the existing systems. And I think like we, you know, we have I. I would imagine other districts do, you know, we have a lot of anxiety about the impending end of ESSER funding. And even though we we've been really trying to be conscientious about not funding huge initiatives or whatever, that we need to be sustainable with funding that we know won't sustain. It's also impossible not to move forward with stuff that we wouldn't have been able to do without that funding. And so I think about that when you talk about real estate, I think that there's some um, overlap, but I think in trying to trying to plan out if we're, if we're identifying an upstream problem that we think that we can resolve, are we going to be able to sustain that resolution through a couple years or five years or 10 years? If, if, if there's an, if there's a cost that we don't know if we're going to continue to be able to budget for, you know, and I think for us, and for us, it's really real, um, especially because stuff, a lot of solutions cost a lot of money at scale too.
0: Yeah. It, it's always a tricky spot when you're dealing with, um, limited time funded grants and and things like that and and how you how those like what you're saying Kara how those things can be operationalized so that they're built into the system right you're changing the system um and oftentimes people just think downstream and throw money at it when we need to be thinking upstream and what that money would look like over a long period of time Maureen
3: yeah I wanted to ask uh follow up on Tony's comment about how do you engage the right people. And one of the things that they talked about um, was that feedback loop and meetings and where they started the meetings and everybody's was really negative. So you didn't necessarily have the right people or you didn't know you had the right people. But then once they engaged that feedback loop and they had that process and they started seeing change, then people got more positive And the ratings of those meetings got much higher based on that feedback loop.
0: Yeah, pulling together the right team, you know, to Anthony, you were saying like that's that's sort of a long-term thing. And I I appreciated what Dan Heath was saying that to succeed in upstream efforts, you need to surround the problem. Uh, mm-hmm. meaning you need to attract people who can address all the key dimensions of the issue. So like top to bottom, right, right to left, um, trying to pull in whoever it might be that could give that feedback, like Maureen was saying. Um and asking people to be insightful about it, right?
5: I, and Maureen, I loved you bringing it up, that feedback loop, because I th- I think of it like when we have our admin meetings. Like, is the admin meeting really a discussion of topics and everybody getting their feedback, or is it more of a, like, let's sit and talk about what I've done for the past two weeks and be yelled at why I didn't do something for you? And, and And I think it it ends up going, we all know it's more of the latter, which is a a, a sit and get while we have this document, you know, we're there just looking, people are looking for answers that again could be done over a phone call or an email or something that isn't where you're gathering, you know, people that make hundreds of thousands of dollars for hours to, to just divulge like what we've done for the past two weeks. And I, I liked at the end, I think where he was like, you know, after a meeting, you you go around and say like, I know scale of one to five. Was this time worthwhile? And like, I sit there and think of like, I have a weekly meeting with our team, and we sit there and we talk about sit and get stuff. And I'm like, okay, like, is this really the best time that we're spending to figure out what's going on? Like, I don't care that you replaced three people's screens. I could give two fahooties. Yeah. Like, I want to know. Like, what do you, like questions I want to know is like what did you find? What was new this week that you found was a problem that you saw and that you could resolve? Hmm. Like, I, I need to change them to be like, proactive. I, like, repairs are going to be repairs. Like, some weeks are going to be more, some weeks are less. What are you doing to find stuff that you know you can improve and, and make better? Like, that's what I want to know. And then I want to sit there and say, like, you know, is, is the time where we're meeting together actually useful? Or are we just doing it to sit there and say, like, we've had a weekly team meeting?
0: And that's great coaching um, for your team, Brian, right? Like helping everybody at all levels start to think upstream um, in the issues that they're, they're, that they're experiencing on a daily level, right? Um,
6: Amanda? we have actually, Brian, to your point, kind of restructured our ad team meetings this year um, because nobody wanted to come to them. <laughs> Um, so we have like a little section at the top of our ed team notes of like the check all the boxes what are the housekeeping things that we need to check in about and then we meet for just an hour around one problem and or one topic so we can focus just on that one thing and then at the end we set what our next topic is going to be so it's you know really addressing problems and not just going through the motions of meeting
1: and complaining to each other. (laughs) Anthony.
4: Yeah. So confession time. I had a, I had a really grandiose idea about how I wanted to do this after action report, get a survey together and shoot it out. After we've done emergency drills of any kind, but after reading the chapter, you know, I was like, stop delete whatever you're doing and have a meeting with people. Hmm. And so I had Hmm. a meeting with two key stakeholders and they were like, Tony, this idea is great, but it's not possible. And these are the reasons that it's not possible. Hmm. And they laid out like really good reasons. And I said, so what options do we have? Well, you want to do this every time an incident happens. How about we look at doing this four times a year? Hmm. staged. And then the survey can go out to just say what work doing this drill, whether it's a weather drill, whether it's a, you know, a, a active shooter drill, whatever kind of drill it is. How about we just do this four times a year? And I was like, Ooh, well, that's going to take a policy, which we don't have. Hmm. And they were like, Oh, so you're going to write a policy for this. Well, great, Tony, thanks for bringing us to the table. So it may have created more work for me, But I appreciate the fact that they were like, yeah, it's a novel idea, but it's not actually feasible to do this every time. Mm -hmm. We can do these strategic checks at this time of the year when we do this that will help curb the problems. And if anything comes up in between of an actual emergency, then we can just deal with it then. That takes the load off of administrators. That takes the load off of teachers. That takes the frustration off of students. Mm -hmm. And it takes us right back square one. And so this is why I'm saying like swimming upstream has really been like revolutionary for me, not just mm-hmm. at work, but at home and other relationships, because it's just, it's causing me to think a little bit more deeper than I initially would, but it's also causing me to build partnerships with people who I don't have consistent interaction with. Yeah, And yeah. that's, that's what's making me excited about reading this. Cool. And it's some of it's hard because I'm used to I'm used to the status quo, exactly. but the status quo has to go now. And it's pushing me in ways that I think are beneficial for the organization and way more beneficial for our students as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So you're keeping the, the people closest to the problem, um, you know, giving you feedback or or upstreaming, right? Pushing you even further upstream uh, in in your situation. And I mean, you really... They, they've really contributed to designing an, an early warning system that gives you enough time to respond, right, to a, a particular situation because you're staging some of this so that they can have a sense of like, this is what we would do in response and not really in the crisis in the moment,
4: right? Yes. And it's our ownership. It's not people tend to think that IT likes to dictate things. And we really don't. We just want to be included. And some of that inclusion is us actually bringing people in. Yeah. So not calling people out, but calling people in to have these discussions.
0: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I applaud you, uh, Anthony, because upstream work, like Dan Heath says, upstream work hinges on humility. Right. And we're, we're constantly like failing forward. Right. How are we fumbling our, I mean, we, and we're going to be fumbling our way through sometimes, some of these discoveries of problems or trying to figure out what levers to pull. Um, and that's a fumbling forward kind of a- exercise, right? For all of us.
1: Definitely, definitely. Anthony, I just want to say that I love that not calling people out, but calling people in.
6: I think that's awesome. And I just want to put it on a poster in my office. So.
2: I, I, <laughs> Make
4: sure you I tweet think I'm that out. I think I'm going to do
2: the same <laughs> I I think I'm going to do the same, guys. I I love that quote.
4: Anthony, that is just unbelievable. I have to give an amazing shout out to a young lady named Ebony Durham, who revolutionized that thought and that theory for me. So I want to make sure I give credit where credit is due. But after this, I'm going to own it myself. No.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, in our little group, you own it. (laughs) other thoughts on any of these other questions. Yeah, how do you know you're succeeding?
4: Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's one I would like to explore. How do you know you're succeeding? Because at the same time you're trying to succeed, you're also seeing areas that may have been impacted of non-success. And so I can't point to a particular piece in the book but again, I think it goes back to how we use data. But just just curious, when, like, how do you know you're succeeding? I think it comes in baby steps. I think it comes with understanding that how do we even define success in this particular area where we're making change? And so, Maureen, definitely want to hear what you got to say on this one.
3: Well, I, I was just going to comment. You said baby steps and that's exactly what he mentioned is you have to have those small measures along the way. It's like, if you have a strategic goal, what are the steps that will get you to that end point? Mm-hmm. And then you measure those rather than waiting till the end to measure, you need to make sure you're on track and meeting those marks along the way so that you can be successful in the end. Yeah.
0: When I love when he says, you know, what we need to be looking at, um, when we don't see the dominoes are like the spaces in between and that's really where we need to be focusing on is before the dom- before the next domino falls, like what are we doing in the spaces in between and I think that ties to how are we measuring success, right? It's what we're doing in the spaces in between. Brian?
5: Yeah, I think for me with that success, I mean, <clears throat> I I use the analogy, I think it's like, um, for me, it's, especially with technologies, I think it's like a a planting of a seed. And, you know, like we we, planting of a seed, we give technology to somebody and then we have to continually nurture that seed, right? Give it water, give it sunlight. Maybe there's a little bit of the the conversation, the professional learning that comes along with it. And I think for me, like the outcome of knowing that the success is there is when you see that the implementation is like occurred with them being able to do it themselves. An example I'll give you is this. We had all these old projectors. I mean, terrible, like dimly lit stuff. And we have one of our, one of them in our, our our conference room, our district office conference room. And so nobody ever used the projector. We always rolled out this 75 foot TV, 75 inch TV and it just like annoyed me. And so I replaced the projector and I put a new screen beam in and how how do I how do I know that the the implementation has worked because I see when people are meeting in there the projector has been on more since I replaced the projector than it had ever been prior to me being in that space. Mm-hmm. And the utilization has increased and now they're like Hey, how do we do this in this room? How do we do? And so now the usage is there and now they're expanding the horizon. How how do I do more with the space that you've now become and made more useful than it ever had been probably before? So I I use the analogy of kind of like planting a seed, nurturing the seed. And and then, you know, uh, for me, the, 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 the happiness comes is when you go past classrooms and you see the work that you've done actually being being utilized. Yeah, yeah.
0: I think that ties in um really great with what um Dan Heath had said system change starts with a spark of courage that you mentioned, at the start. Mm-hmm. But a spark can't last forever and the end game to eliminate the need for courage, to render it unnecessary because the right things happen by default. So you know you've made your system change, right? Like you were just explaining Brian, like the right things are happening naturally, you know, um, people are using that projector in the ways that they need to collaborate together. Right. It's cool. a natural thing. And so. And it makes not, our
5: job uh, easier when yes. we have people that want to, to, to do something with it versus uh, handing something. i like, I don't want this. Um, so yeah, you're absolutely right. MJ. Yeah.
1: So it's
0: interesting that a lot of these questions um, are falling under three different categories. And Dan Heath is posing to us leaders to kind of keep, to be mindful of a shift in strategy, right? I stopped to think of people as homeless and start thinking of them as people without houses, right? Um, and, And how that changes the look of the problem and your, your strategy or approach to it. And then a shift in collaboration, like what Anthony was saying, or like what we've all been saying, like getting the right people in, um, like it says here, um, now Walker said our office here, we're the single point of entry. If you're homeless and you need a place to live, you need to come here. So pulling together the forces, right. In collaboration with one another. And then the final shift of data. I mean, we talk a lot about data data uh, during this session. Data takes you away from the philosophical insights. You move away from anecdotal fights about what people think is happening to what is happening, right? And collecting that data um, at those points. Your thoughts on those three particular shifts, a shift in strategy, a
1: shift in collaboration, a shift in data.
4: I noticed a quote that came out of um, How Do You Avoid Doing Harm. Um, he quoted um, Donella Meadows. It says, As you think about a system, spend part of your time from a vantage point that lets you see the whole system, not just a problem that, that may have drawn you to focus on the system to begin with. Hmm. And I was, <laughs> you know, I've got a list of things I have to get done, but I put a pause on a lot of them until I. Am I looking at the whole ecosystem of this and how it works? Hmm. I tend to single, I, I, I tend to focus on the problem that I see as opposed to the whole system and what's actually causing that. Hmm. And so it, this has just helped me slow down a little bit, but I think that starts with being able to think about the system and not just a part of that system that is seemingly broken or not functioning the right way.
0: Yeah.
7: Carol? I think that the the biggest shift in trying to uh, solve problems upstream for my team is really collaboration, but more so like meaningful collaboration. And so you can't get much done in an organization our size without collaborating with other departments. There's very little like that ha- can happen in a silo, even if you want it to. But I think what we've fallen in the trap of in the past is is being like, okay, well, we're we're gonna we'll loop these, we'll loop this other team in at the very last second, just for the piece we need, and then we'll cut them loose, right? And there's so they have no buy-in, they don't really understand what we're working towards, mm-hmm. or you know, but and so I think it's like me when I say meaningful collaboration, like um like connecting in a way where everyone is pulling toward the same goal or a similar goal, but everybody's gaining something from it. And that's mm-hmm. easier said than done. And I think like making that shift in practice is challenging, but some of it is really just us having sort of doing some level setting to different departments or offices in advance and saying, you know, like we we can all agree, this is an issue. One of our issues right now is we have um, a catalog of interactive whiteboards, many of which don't display PDFs, you know, like we have issues with, and that's, and so even though that seems in a smaller district, that would be simple, take them out and replace them or put them in a cycle of refresh, like to refresh and pick out new ones or whatever in this case, we got a lot of, a lot of interactive whiteboards, a lot of partners in the vendor pool. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're working with a lot of teams to try to figure out how to, what are our like short-term, medium-term and long-term solutions. And it sounds pedestrian, but it's a big, it would be, it would be a big win for several different departments if we can get it working, like get the devices working and come up with a plan to get teachers to be able to project, show the students their learning materials. Right. And so that's, That one to me is because collaborating is easy, but successfully or effectively collaborating, I think, is way more
1: difficult. Yeah, and what you're saying, Kara, is like the plague of a
0: large system, like, you know, how scalable is this? Um, And what kind of infrastructure can you have to have these meaningful collaborations, right? Because you know you're going to need them. And with, you know, really large systems, I always found like com- going from a smaller district to a larger district to a very large district that like establishing those collaboration um, venues are, are like the biggest challenge, right, to, to making sure people are thinking upstream. Other thoughts?
5: Well, I think, you know, as Kara said, like just jumping from a district of four, four schools in 1600 to now seven schools in 2600. Like I didn't think it would be that big of a deal, but all of a sudden I inherited eight people. And I'm like, those are eight people that have to be treated differently. And your staff is now bigger. And so like, as I'm talking about all this communication, I'm like, traditionally I would have wrote an email and, and pass it out. But now I'm like, I don't know if email is the best medium because I'm allowing 200 people to interpret my words in a way that I don't necessarily want so I'm looking at how do I make um, uh, our district is 161 so I'm like how do I do a a, you know 161 second video about really what I want to would want to say in an email so you can I know right like and I'm a long-winded talker so I'm like I gotta shorten it up (laughs) but you know like they're going to see my inflection they're going to see my excitement they're to, and, and so that is the buy in to get them to come in i don't think i get that by writing an email yeah
0: yeah well and you're in the position of having develop a lot of relationships pretty oh quickly God. absolutely yeah. yeah yeah at a scalable level right
5: mm-hmm. yeah trying to see who your champions are in in buildings and um Yeah. There's just, it's just so interesting. There's so many layers, right? I mean, it's the tech people, it's IC people, it's coach. I mean, like there's a lot of people doing a lot of different stuff. I'm like, okay, how do you get buy-in from those people? Because those are the people you need to start champion to, to start in some ways, you know, fighting the battle on that, that front line.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure.
2: Brian, I actually, real real quick, MJ, I I actually, I had that same thing when I moved over uh, to to my current district at 214. You know, I have a very large staff and we also encompass 10 different villages and every village mm-hmm. and municipality needs something totally different. Like right now, as, as everybody knows the Arlington Heights, we're looking at the bears stuff. So what is that yeah. going to mean for our, our buildings that are in Arlington Heights versus our building and wheeling and in elk Grove. And how do we, how do we work through that? Um, and making sure that we have all the right people at the table, all the right people in the meetings, um, And and are we really going to be able to come down to one consensus? And and how do we handle the other pieces? So what really, what you said, what really hit me was this, you know, how do we avoid doing harm? Because we always think we're doing something that's going to be positive, but with such a large group, and Kara, I'm sure you see this in in CPS and, and Anthony as well with the things that you guys are doing, but how do we not do unintended harm? Yeah to a group when we're doing something positive to
5: another group, right? Like, so that it was like the Cobra effect, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
7: yeah. I think for us, one of the big one of the most essential one of the most essential ways to do that is to make sure that the right people are in the room making the decisions, you know. And mm-hmm. and, and that and that's and that's hard to do in a lot of different ways in big district, medium and small, like who identifies the right people. But I think that's the thing is like um, there tends to, I think there tends to be a um, a belief, sometimes correct, but frequently not that we know what students and teachers need because fill in the blank, because I was a teacher, because I'm in this role and I have a master's degree, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. And then, but without stakehold, without meaningful stakeholder input, I think that Frequently, we're kind of just shooting from the hip, but it's time-consuming. If it's union teachers, we got to pay them. There's like a lot of work to be done. But I think the alternative is like I think I think a lot of mistakes are made in top-down decision making when we don't actually when we don't not just ask them what they want, but then take that into consideration in the final decision making for sure.
5: Okay, I think Kara, what you said exactly there was there was a situation where they talked. where was a whole thing about the trees, like. We're 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 not we don't want to spend the forty dollars an hour to have them collectively come together to give us the true feedback, but we're okay making the decision that is ten times costly, more costly than if we just paid out the two thousand dollars. But we we have no problem dropping two hundred K like the snap of a finger.
0: Right. Man.
6: Pound
5: wise, penny pennywise, pound foolish, right? Right,
0: right, exactly. Amanda?
6: Yeah, that's one of the things that um, this book has made me think about a lot. One of the um, one of my big tasks um, that I'm working on is cybersecurity because we're a little bit behind on that. Um, but it's really hard to sell when, if like, if nothing happens, then we're okay. But it's right. like something's gonna happen. <laughs> like,
1: exactly. And like,
6: how do I convince you that we need to spend money? to keep it from happening and like so like when it came to that that last um question in this section of like how do you how will you pay for what doesn't happen and how will you like explain that you know a penny now or whatever the saying is that Brian just said you know mm-hmm. saves you a, a penny
5: dollar wise, pound foolish
6: yeah thank yeah. you anyways <laughs> pound foolish yeah so yeah
4: I think that leverage point that he talks about, um, every problem will have its own array of factors that increase risk uh, for or protect against. And each of those factors is a potential leverage point. So from that aspect, we had to paint a picture. Your daughter turns 18. She's going off to college. And now you find out she's seven hundred and twenty five thousand dollars in debt because her school got hacked years ago and no one said anything about it. Is that the future that you want for your daughter? Okay, now by that times, 12,500 students that we service every day.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, it, that's a perfect metaphor, uh, Amanda, to like, you know, kind of explain the story of why it is that um, more upstream thinking needs to be done, uh, especially in that area of like cybersecurity and stuff. So what a rich discussion! I'm going to yeah. end with wow. I'm going to end with like a summary for our listeners um, and an encouragement to pick up the book. But to prevent problems, uh, upstream leaders must unite the right people. They must hunt for leverage points and push for systems to change. Uh, they must try to spot problems early. They must ag- agonize about how to measure success. And avoid both ghost victories and unintended consequences, right? And finally, like we were just talking, we must think about the funding stream. How to find someone who'll pay for prevention, right? So that kind of sums up these uh, chapter 5 through 11.
2: I'll tell you what, MJ, first of all, I think uh, we need to give MJ a quick quick thanks. She does just a wonderful job moderating this discussion. That was Awesome. so um for all of our listeners out there, you know, make sure if you haven't picked up the book, grab the book. We do have our Twitter chat going um, and would, I'm gonna say more than encouraging everybody to join in. Uh, it's a great way to continue this amazing, rich discussion that we've got going on um, and m j, how do they how do they post on that Twitter onto that Twitter chat?
0: Yeah, it's hashtag. I E T L U all capital and P S T R E A M hashtag idle
2: upstream. upstream yeah idle upstream and again we'll put that into the notes for this podcast when we uh, when it's released so you can just click that link as well uh, but we're going to continue the discussion today's podcast Twitter, is brought to you by on, mindset. Uh, MindSight event. provides IT services to many K-12 school districts in the Chicagoland area, from cybersecurity to hybrid well. cloud, uh, we've got unified communications to managed services. MindSight screen. has acted so as an extension of client IT well. teams so for, for nearly sure 20 years. Along with us, They're recognized so as, that, as a leading IT consulting firm, so contact them with any IT-related questions at 630-981-5007. I just want to visit again MJ, all of our com and uh, tell them was just such that I enjoyed discussion sent you. and I'm looking forward to the next section. So until then keep doing the great stuff everybody's doing and see you next time.